Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, March 23rd, we're studying Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. The time for Jesus to celebrate the Passover has come. With his betrayal looming, Jesus gives his disciples a most precious meal. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Jason Casper. Pastor Casper serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks for having me. As we get started this morning, Pastor, let's talk context. We're here in Mark chapter 14. It's Holy Week. What do we need to know about the context going into the words that we've got today? So we are coming into the celebration of the Passover. This is this is what the what the disciples and Jesus are about to do, and they are celebrating one of the major feasts of the of the Jewish calendar. This is the remembrance of the Exodus out of Egypt. This is the meal that is celebrated annually as as part of that remembrance. We remember at Sinai they celebrated Passover twice, and in the wilderness, the passage of time in the wilderness is marked by the numbers of times that they celebrate Passover. This is a very significant point for all of the understanding of Israel. And the the deliverance from death is a really key feature of Passover for Jewish folks and also coming into the Christian faith, the connection between the Passover of the Jews and the Passover of death from us through Christ comes very, very clearly as we, we have the institution of the supper presented here in the upper room on Maundy Thursday. Um, this particular text has a couple of different places in pops up in our in our lectionaries it's assigned as the text for holy tuesday which you know 99.9999999999% of lutherans don't celebrate church on holy tuesday but in both the one year lectionary and all three of the years in the three year lectionary it is assigned for for holy tuesday additionally it comes up on palm sunday in year b i think y'all are in year a this year it's year b so that'll be the next next it is your B. Okay, that's so why we're doing Sunday Mark. this year yeah. for y'all. <laughs> there you go. And also, it comes up in uh, one. What are the other days? I've got a couple of things listed here. Oh, not the not the particular Mark text, but the parallel in Matthew comes up on Palm Sunday in the historic lectionary, the one year lectionary, and also in year A, as well as Holy Monday in all three years A, B, and C in the three year lectionary. It comes up Luke twenty two. Another of the parallel texts, which comes up on Holy Monday in the one-year lectionary, Palm Sunday in year C of the three-year lectionary, as well as Holy Wednesday in A, B, and C, and Maundy Thursday in year C. And then also, <laughs> we find ourselves hearing a recapitulation of the text from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And that comes up in all four years, the A, B, and C of the three-year and the one-year on Easter Wednesday, which sadly is another one of these days that 99.99999% of Lutherans do not celebrate. But it comes up quite a few times as an assigned text, both in the Mark text itself and in the parallels surrounding it. 
So we've got a, a very important text here from the scriptures. It's all over the place in the lectionary surrounding the events of Holy Week in one way or another, whether you hear it from Mark 14 or you hear it in one of the parallel accounts from the evangelists or from St. Paul, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul write. Even Luther picks that up in the catechism. I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that. So this is a, a really— familiar. That's right. This is a really important text. And even if we don't hear this particular reading— on a particular Holy Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday during Holy Week, it is a familiar account and an important account that we probably remember from observing Monday, Thursday. The events that we're going to talk about take place on the day we call Monday, Thursday, or Holy Thursday. So this is a really important text that we're going to look at today for a number of reasons. You mentioned, as you were talking about context, some Old Testament background particularly concerning the deliverance from death that is there in the Passover celebration for the people of Israel. Tell us a little bit more about that. Remind us more of that Old Testament background. How is deliverance of death a part of the Passover celebration and what the Lord did for his people there in the book of Exodus? Yeah, this deliverance from death is is an important part of the of really the beginning of what we find in Exodus, which then goes into Leviticus and describes the entirety of the Jewish faith. But 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 the Passover is the is the the leaping off point for it. And what we find is that death is assuaged by blood. The the blood of the lamb that is spread on the doorposts and on the lintel of the homes of the Jews to indicate to the angel of death this is not a house where where the where the, the curse of death should be exercised today. So as that angel passes over, going through the houses of Egypt and killing the firstborn, the ones who are who are spared are spared by way of blood. We find a connection, I believe it's in Hebrews too, that talks about, and Leviticus, the blood being, the life being in the blood, and that it is actually life that is, that's saving us from death. And that's how that connection gets drawn. And then that blood sacrifice draws out through most of the rest of the Jewish sacrifices. You also have grain offerings and whatnot, but there are so many blood sacrifice offerings. When we get to Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement, the blood of the bull, the blood of the, the blood of the goat, the scapegoat that's sent out into the wilderness, there's all these elements of life that are standing in place between us and God, pushing back that, that death, the consequence of sin. And the blood, the life that is in the blood, keeps us safe from that. And what we're going to find then, as all those things are drawn together in Christ, that the blood of Christ, the one single sacrifice, is the overarching sacrifice that all the rest of those blood sacrifices were looking forward to and hoping for as the promise that made those sacrifices valid and useful. This one single sacrifice, the blood of the life of Jesus, that is going to be the thing that finally puts the nail in the coffin of death and sets the sets the penalty of sin aside for us. Right. I mean, Jesus, when he gives his blood in the supper, he, he talks about this as the covenant or the New Testament in my blood. And all of that comes to bear on it, which is, again, as you said, it's it's much broader than what happens on the night of the Passover. That's a certainly, certainly a huge part of it. And when we call Jesus with John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that is in view. But all of those Old Testament sacrifices are finding their fulfillment in what Christ does. You could really, I think, take it all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord provides garments of skin for Adam and Eve. And, and in order Indeed, to do which that... Which had to come from a living thing, right? That's right. So we, <laughs> right. In order, in order yeah, for there to be the forgiveness of sins, 
and the the picture, you know, the covering with righteousness, blood has to be shed. That's the language of Hebrews. Yes, indeed. And it is it is good for us to remember that and have that as in in the framing of our mind when we think about what's happening, not only in the Passover, but also in the Lord's Supper and how all of the bits that that's one of those things uh, we actually just in my catechism class, we were just looking at Hebrews this week and, and Hebrews chapter by chapter does such a glorious way of exposing how all of the elements of the Jewish faith are not a thing that ceased to be or wasn't the same promise. We sort of lose track of that in Christianity, like somehow the the old Passover practice and the old the old sacrificial system were the way that Jews were saved by some act of work on their part, and then in in the, in the new age there's a new dispensation and we're saved in a different way. That's absolutely not the case. All of those things were a, a, an active participation in the hope and the faith of what was to come in Christ. And Christ isn't isn't in his New Testament isn't wiping away those the, those things. And does it in a complete and final way instead of in this repeated method that looks forward to what's happening. Instead, it looks currently at what's going on right this second. Jesus died for you. Today is the day of salvation. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. Right. I mean, some of that, all of this talk about sacrifice of blood. I mean, it reminds me of some of the conversations that I've had with previous guests concerning what's happening there in the temple. And then just in the very previous chapter here in Mark, Mark 13, where Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. And the reason that the temple is no longer necessary as a building is because Jesus, the temple, is here, the dwelling place of God among men, who makes this sacrifice. And and all of, I mean, what's happening here, and of course the disciples aren't putting it together on Monday, Thursday night in the events that we're going to read, but looking back on it later, I mean, you can just see how, how Jesus still is teaching them here, and indeed giving them this fulfillment of the temple in himself. It's really quite marvelous. It is. It, it's such a cool expression. And and Jesus calls himself or talks about himself like the temple. But it's interesting also that, that both John and the writer of Hebrews refer to him as the tabernacle. Because for the Jews, the, the, the good old days were the days in the wilderness when we were with God and, and surrounding him in the, around the tabernacle. And so for them, they dial it even tighter and say it's not just the temple which was great, but the tabernacle is the really good thing. He's also, this is the tabernacle. This is the new dwelling place of God right here in human flesh. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a, that's a thing that is such a cool picture for us to have that it is, it isn't, it isn't a, 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 an erasure of the thing. It's a, it's a more complete, bigger, better, bolder version of the thing. This is the, this is the Jesus, the way God actually intended us to dwell with him in human flesh. And in the resurrection, we will see that completely. And in the in-between time where we are, the now and the not yet, we get, we get caught up with, with a place where sin is still a struggle for us in the flesh. And so he gives us his supper, his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins to perpetuate us and keep us in the faith. Before I forget, I mean, throughout this conversation, that verse from Martin Luther's, and I know it's, I know it's Lent, but I'm going to quote from an Easter hymn here. Christ Jesus Uh-oh. lay in death strong bands. And and maybe you know yeah. the, the stands I'm talking about where, where Luther says, in Christ we you know, we see our true paschal lamb. And the words the words particularly, this is in stanza five as it's given in Lutheran service book, hymn four fifty eight. See his blood now marks our door. Faith points to it, death passes or and Satan cannot harm us. Every every time I have this conversation about the Lord's Supper and the blood of Jesus and what it does and the connection to the Passover lamb, I can't help but think of those words from Luther and that hymn. What a great connection. Yeah, I had I had not put that together. That's a wonderful 
<laughs> that's a wonderful thing. Stands of five. I'll have to pay more attention. To that's that right. This Easter season. Yes. If you if if you've never sung, this is this is a bit of an aside now. But I, I it was not until I was a pastor until I really discovered Luther's Easter hymn, "Christ Jesus Lay in Death Strong Bands," and it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. the The melody I understand is maybe a bit more challenging than some of the other good Easter hymns. I'm not trying to say that any of the other Easter hymns are <laughs> are less worthy, but this one is so good, and I think maybe we don't know it as well as we should. So if you're a pastor, consider him 458 from Lutheran service book, Christ Jesus lay in death strong bands. If you're a lay person, ask your pastor about singing it during this Easter season, come April 4th and following. Well, and what a fun that that one in particular is such a cool Easter hymn because it, it, it has that minor modality to it, which you don't get an Easter hymnody Easter hymn. Are always major, always mixolydian, always bright, always cheerful. And the Luther hymn, Christ Jesus Lay in Death Strong Bands, we sing it and, and folks will look around and say, What is this? Is it still a Lenten hymn? No, it's just a minor mode hymn. Right. It's still a glorious expression of the of the resurrection that we get. Yeah. Here our true Paschal Lamb we see, whom God so freely gave us. I think that's the wrong tune. Um, anyway, you we'll got do that it. another time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We'll we'll have a we'll we'll have to talk about him sometime together on an on an extra perhaps. So with yeah, that, and just right. so when you get to the Easter season and and you sing that hymn, stanza five, think of what's happening in Exodus twelve, in the Passover, and what Jesus is doing here in Mark fourteen and in the parallel accounts. We'll go ahead and read the text that we've got. We're in Mark fourteen, beginning at verse twelve. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. That's the text for today. Mark 14, verses 12 through 25. Pastor Casper, the first couple verses here set the scene for us. It is the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Now, we we been given this context earlier in chapter 14, that it's this time of year. Here, Mark really seems to be dialing in on the the Passover lamb and the sacrifice. Some of those things we've been talking about, he really seems to be dialing in on that as he sets this scene for us. 
Yeah, he's doing it very crisply. He's getting us right into that. This is the sacrificing of the Paschal Lamb tonight. This is the night of the feast. This is the actual the actual meal. Everything's going on, and that we don't have enough information to really express a lot of this. But it seems like their preparations might be a little hurried, more so than they might normally be. Um, like, like they haven't done a lot of advanced preparation. And so this this getting ready, we have to go. We have to go find a place. Go go down into the street. Go into the city and find a place. Who are, who are you going to talk to? And Luke is the first one that gives us this thing. Remember, sequencing wise, we generally will say that Matthew was written first, then Luke, and there may be a dead heat between Mark and John, who is the last of the of the, the gospel writers. So thinking of it that way, Matthew tells us to go to a certain person. And Luke tells us go to a certain person who's carrying a water jar, and, and Mark recapitulates that same deal. The water jar, looking for the man carrying a water jar, that's a, actually a really descriptive uh, identifier for who this guy is, because the carrying of the water jars is is typically women's work. So you see a guy carrying a water jar, that's obviously not like any other guy in town. He's probably the only one. <laughs> So you might as well, it's almost like saying, look for the guy in the pink hat that says some weird scrawl on the top of it, because you, you'll know exactly who this man is. He's the only one that's going to appear this way in front of you. So there's, there's actually a very clear description. It's not so, it's not so, so unclear. Like we got from Matthew, go to a certain man. Well, how do we know which man? It's pretty specific. This guy is the one. So and and so we get these details that Jesus gives his disciples. They're very specific. We've seen him do this before. What comes to mind right away is the preparations that he makes for his entrance into Jerusalem. He sends those two disciples and he tells them where to go, what they're going to find with the colt, what to say if they're questioned. And, and you know, it goes just as he says. With with these preparations, you get a very similar similar thing. I mean, Jesus says, here's what you say, here's what you do. As you said, a man carrying a water jar, this is going to be unusual. One question that I think comes up, and this has probably been discussed among many Christians across the ages, is, is this Jesus, in his divine nature, making preparations in a way that he does, because he's God, and he, he just knows that this is the way it goes, or is there some sort of, like, this particular man? Does he know him from another situation? Do the disciples know him? what I mean, do you have any insight on that? I tend to lean more towards the this is a miraculous event side of that. Um, and, and the reason is this this still fits within the context of the miracles of Jesus are always for us and never for him. Mm. And, and this doesn't facilitate any part of his life. In fact, we're going to hear in Gethsemane that he would really rather not do this if he can get out of it today. If, if you can let this cut pass from me, I'd prefer we don't do that. So he's not doing any of this for his benefit. This is solely for our benefit. And as a result, his divine power and the, mirac- the miracles that he, that he demonstrates for us, changing water into wine and feeding the 5,000 and casting out demons and forgiving sin and doing all of the work that Jesus does, healing the blind, those sorts of works. He doesn't do this stuff for himself. He hungers and thirsts. When he goes off in the wilderness, he suffers just exactly as humans suffer and receives no benefit from his divine nature. But we do all the way along through his entire ministry. So I don't I don't think this is at all out of character for him to use his divine attributes in this moment to 
say, yeah, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to talk to this guy. Look for the one with the water jar. Say this to him. Ask him about his face. He's going to tell you about the upper room, which is another detail we get from Luke that, that comes in to, drive, to draw more specificity there. And, and Mark actually dials in some more tight specificity in there for us, too. He gets this. He, we get the idea from Luke that it's an upper room that's furnished. In Matthew, we didn't have that clarity in there. And here in, in Mark, we, we get that it's upper, it's furnished and it's ready for us. Hmm. So the, the level of preparation seems to be diminishing as we, as we get more detail on the, on the, on the telling of the story that it, 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 this is, may have been a rushed preparation time. They may have really been scrambling to get things ready. And yet by some, by some miracle, this man was prepared for someone to come and have the Passover here, and it's ready for you. So, I mean, what, what did they need to do? They, they went upstairs and rearranged the chairs a little, little bit. That, that may have been the extent of their preparation. I don't know. Hmm. This is, and that, that sort of fits within this miraculous event, that this, this could very well be one of these miraculous events that, that Jesus, in his divine power, prepared for his disciples all of the things necessary for them to celebrate the Passover because today is the day we're going to have the institution of the supper. And this is really important and nothing's going to stand in its way. Mm. All the work of God is going to be on full display here today. So in, just in terms of the, the picture that we're getting from Jesus' words here and what happens, a couple of things come to mind. So the way, the way you're describing it is that as the disciples go to this room that Jesus has described and they, you know, they find it just as he's told them they prepared the Passover, that really these, these preparations have mostly already been made by the man to whom they go, the man to whom Jesus has directed them. Which I, I think, I mean, points to a, a larger piece of theology just in this whole narrative that, you know, the disciples go, where, where are we going to make preparations here for the Passover? And, and yet, this is Jesus' Passover. He's the one who's doing the preparing, and, and ultimately, he's the one doing the fulfilling. And just so, in the circumstances of the way that this happens, you know, the disciples didn't go buy the lamb somewhere. They didn't go get the unleavened bread or bake it themselves. It's all there for them. And and they set it up however is is necessary. But still, this is Jesus' work for them. This is his preparation for them. And that's true even in just these these outward parts of the meal that they're getting ready here in this first part of the text. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's that's just such a cool thing. And And that really... That, that correlates so nicely into all the aspects of, of Christian worship. What, what is the life of the worship, the worship life of the Christian? It is our Lord speaks and we listen. As Dr. Nagel said in the introduction to LW, we, that'd be the, the Lutheran worship, the blue hymnal that not everybody is fully aware of that is really falling into great disuse these days. Um, however, the, the front page of that book has some real gems of Lutheran theology in it. But the, the nature of what worship is, is our stumbling into a room where God is giving himself to us. And, and, and in, 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 in humble, in humility and in wisdom, we then respond with the words that he gave us to say already, mm. because all of the, all of the, all the best things God has to offer us are his words, both ours, both the ones he says to us and the ones we say back to him. Mm. It, it's such cool stuff. The preparations are all made. And, and then, yeah, and then Jesus takes those preparations and gives them back to the disciples. I, I was reminded, as you know, in, in the early church, from what I understand, that 
part of the offerings that would have been brought to a church service would have been bread and wine food that would have been used for a variety of reasons. I mean, there would have been food that would have been given, say, to those who are in need in the community and that kind of thing. But within those offerings was bread and wine that then Jesus turns back around and gives it back to his people in an even greater blessing, which is, I mean, that's just an amazing thing. And I think you see it here in this text. We certainly see it in our lives today that that every time, you know, we maybe say it this way, take our hands off of what belongs to Jesus, he turns around and gives it back to us in an even better way. And and the supper that he's going to give here is perhaps the greatest example of that. Indeed. It, it really is. And this, this is such a, this is such a fun text to get. I, I was really looking forward to this when we spoke because this is, we're coming up for Easter week preparations here at all of our churches. And what do we get to talk about today? We get to talk about the Monday Thursday text. This is wonderful. <laughs> we couldn't ask for a better idea. Um, when it, it, it comes forward, there's this interesting thing. I want to, I want to skip ahead a little bit from where we are sure. um, into, into verses 17 to 21. Um, in the evening when he came to when he came with the 12 and they were reclining we actually get to the, the celebration of the supper there are some bits again that get that get dialed in tighter in mark relative to the other to the other uh, the, the other evangelists uh, we have the the presence who is there at the institution of the supper and this this is actually a table fellowship question that we we've struggled with in the Christian church over the years and one of the one of the key points of contention is the the seeming incongruity between the accounts of the gospel writers and who's there and who's not there and and whose hand is doing what at what time and um i think what part of that is a failure on our part to look at the gospels instead of looking at them as as competing narratives that have to that have to have a winner, we really should always look at the Gospels as uh, as a single narrative of, of which we get snippets from various authors, and all of them are true. Mm-hmm. And to the degree that we can put them together, we should. But if we don't understand how they fit, that's that's our failure, and not the failure of the writers or or of the spirit that inspired them. Mm. So this one is an interesting one in Matthew. We get the, the the talk of of, of this 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 uh, Judas, this betrayer, and he answers, "Who is dipped? He, he who has dipped his hand with in the dish with me will betray me." And it's it's unclear who's there, who's present, whose hand is doing the dipping, and that's still sort of unclear later on. But Luke dials it in a little tighter. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table with me which seems to indicate it's not any of, if there were servants in the room, and that's one of the discussions that comes up in Christianity, that maybe there was a servant who was helping them, who was, who could have been the betrayer. Well, no, there's, it's one of the ones who's at the table. And then Mark dials it in even tighter. He said to them, it is one of the 12, the one who is dipping in, dipping the bread into the dish with me. So just in case you're not, not sure about this, Mark gives us that extra detail. It's not just somebody who happened to be there. Judas isn't excluded from the 12 at this point. He, he is absolutely one of the 12. It is one of them. This is the guy. Now, it, we don't necessarily get a clear picture as to whether anybody else recognizes that it's him there at the table at that moment, and probably not. But who is there for the institution of the supper? Guess what? All 12, including Judas, all are present for this. Yeah, and I mean, that that detail, I think, really does heighten the fact of the grace that Jesus shows. Who Who is it that Jesus is dying for? It's 
for sinners. And that includes me, you, and Judas. And we're going to keep talking about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We have Pastor Jason Casper looking at Mark 14. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, March 23rd. We're looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. We have Pastor Jason Casper with us. He serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, prior to the break, we left off in verses 17 through 21, and it's evening. They are there at the table, Jesus and his 12 disciples. They're eating. Jesus makes this startling pronouncement to them. One of the 12 eating there at the table is going to betray Jesus. You can imagine the shock that goes through the 12. Mark doesn't tell us anything about Judas at this point. We do know from the previous text, what we looked at yesterday, that Judas Iscariot is the one who has agreed to betray Jesus already, even though it doesn't come up here particularly. Rather, Jesus identifies the betrayer as one who is dipping bread into the dish with him, which, before we go any farther than that, just that startling nature, this is a really close betrayal. To, to be betrayed by someone who would eat with you I mean that that's a that's a significant betrayal. Well, yeah, sure, especially in Jewish society. I mean, this this gathering together to eat and to share meals is is the most intimate gathering of of not just Jewish family, but of our our kinship as Jews together. And we we do this with sojourners. We're commanded to treat sojourners well that come into our midst. This is the thing that we do in in mercy and care and love for all those around us. So it's it's not just something you do with anybody. It's something that is done in a very specific way to to gather together and, and, and to care for those around us. And so for one of those people to be the betrayer, that's a pretty big deal. That's not that's not the Romans outside. That's not the, the Pharisees who clearly the Pharisees would not be eating with Jesus. None of these other teachers and chief priests and, and teachers of the law. This this is a this is a close gathering of of well obviously of the twelve, but even if it were extended beyond that, it would still be a pretty tight circle to be gathering together to eat like this. Mm. Uh, Psalm 41, verse 9, it says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You know, and, and just imagine Jesus is the one praying that, that Psalm 41. gives you a, a picture of, of just what an intimate thing this is to have these 12 here with him, to, to be eating with them, even as he shared the last three years with him, and now one of those very people is going to betray him. This is no small thing. And and so Jesus, I mean, he he speaks with great severity here 
about this one who is dipping bread into the dish. He says, the Son of Man is going to go as it's written. And Jesus has told his disciples that previously. He's explained to them, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be handed over, convicted, crucified, and raised. But then Jesus says this, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What does that mean, Pastor Casper? That means, man, oh man, that is, that is a, that's a tough one for us to see in the, in the narrowness of the way it's said here. But we know what happens on the far end of it, and, and Jesus did too. What's going on is that Judas is betraying Christ, but more importantly, in terms of his own self, he's betraying the trust in Christ that is his salvation. And so what Judas is going to do, Judas, this, this is, a, I, I had a, a, a beloved pastor in, in years past who would always say, there was no, no one in the Bible sorrow, sorrier for his sin than Judas. Hmm. Sorrow doesn't accomplish anything. And in his sorrow, Judas turned back to himself, and in turning back to himself, he found nothing and eventually hanged himself because he had, he had no hope for salvation when he turned away from Jesus. And that's, that's where this is going for Judas. And he's not, he's not there yet. He's going to, he's, 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 he's already agreed to, to betray Christ, and he's going to, and then he's going to spiral out of control and it would be better for him that he were never born because he's turning away from the only thing that could be his salvation. And he doesn't have to. Mm. And Jesus doesn't want him to turn away from salvation, but Judas will. And Judas chooses to be apart from salvation. And that's, that is a fate worse than worse than unbornness or death or anything else to be separated from Christ, to be separated by our own decision to do so. And that's, that's, that's sort of the way as Lutherans, we understand that our decision does play into our, our salvation in that we can choose to hate God. If we want to, if we want to continue or return to persistent unbelief and hate God, that's an option for us. And, and God will allow it if that's what we want, but it's, it's, it's a thing that, that, that Jesus does not want for us to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's definitely a, a mystery within these words on the because on the one hand, this is the way it must happen. Jesus has used that language of necessity as he's described these events. It is necessary for these things to happen to the Son of Man, a- and yet at the same time, within these very words to Judas, there is that lament over what's happening to him. Lament over the choice that he is making. This has not been forced upon him, but he is, and, and that's the, the tragedy of unbelief, the tragedy of, of eternal condemnation, is that that is what sinners would choose for themselves. Even, even in the gift of God that's being offered freely, that's so much better, sinners would choose that for themselves. That's the terrible tragedy of unbelief and rejecting of the gospel. And and so, yeah, there's this, this mystery here. On the one hand, this is it's got to go this way. Jesus knows that. But on the other hand, he's it's like he's calling out to Judas, don't do it. You know, trust in me. And 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 the tragedy of it is Judas chooses to betray his Lord. Yep. And and not only does he does he reach out to him, trust in me, don't don't do this, turn away from, from this sin. But then he goes and dies on the cross for Judas. Yeah. Hmm. It, it is no it is no less an atoning sacrifice for you and me than it is for Judas also. And this this 
is the moment of salvation for Judas that Judas doesn't want. Mm. And that's, that's the real, that's the real travesty of, of, of the events in his life, which, which are that, that he doesn't want it. Mm. And, and, and I mean, as Christians, that's, that's one of the most challenging things for us to, to hear in the world and, and to know, um, you'll see that folks from even from our own families will, will depart from the faith and they will choose unbelief over the faith in which they were raised. And, and we try as we might to reach out to them and sometimes with success and sometimes without, we try to bring them back to the faith, knowing all along that if they want unbelief, that's what they're going to have. And, and man, oh man, that's the, that's the bitter prayer of the church. Those who have, those who have fallen away or who, who willfully absent themselves from the divine service, that they would be turned from their hardness of heart and return to the faith and the gathering of the faithful. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the prayer of the church. And, and it is, it's exactly because we have a picture of that in Judas. We know where this leads. Mm-hmm. We, we, we don't, and, we, and, and like Christ, we don't want anyone to go in this direction. Mm-hmm. We want them to stay in the body instead. Right, right. And it, I mean, it's one of those things where, as as Christians, we just, I think we have such a hard time seeing how that's possible. And I'm, and I'm reminded of, of some of the things that Paul talks about, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he talks about the Christ crucified being the power of our salvation, being the wisdom of God for us. And we rejoice in these things. And, and so, and yet the world, those who do not believe, they see the cross as foolishness and as weakness. And just those those two viewpoints, like on the one hand, we as Christians, we look at those who do not believe and, and say, how can you not believe? Look at this. Look at this precious gift. And then those who do not believe, they look at us and be like, you guys are idiots. You're, you're, you believe in a, a crucified God. What's wrong with you? And just those those two opposing viewpoints— and of course, for us as Christians, well, well, what is it? What do we do? We we proclaim the word. We proclaim Christ crucified. And as you said, we pray. We ask God to be faithful with that word and to accomplish his will through it as he promises he will. Indeed. And that is that is that is the challenge for us in the church. But that's that is what we have received. We've been, we've inherited the gospel of forgiveness and and the knowledge and the understanding that sadly not at all will come to faith and some will, will choose not to be in faith. Hmm. And that's, that's just a disappointing reality of, of the Christian life. Hmm. So that brings us then to the main event of this text, the part that, that we know because we hear these words each week in the divine service, the institution of the supper. So in verse 22, things start fairly normal. They're eating. Jesus takes bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. He gives it to them. Nothing here so far is out of the ordinary. This is something they've seen Jesus do in other situations, and certainly it is something that they would have expected Jesus to do in this situation on the Passover as they're celebrating the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. But then he says words that, again, must have quite shocked them. Take this is my body. Then he does with a cup something, again, that starts off what they would have expected. He's got the cup. He gives thanks. He gives it to them. They drink from it. But then he says, this is my blood of the covenant. And, oh, now now they're in a different... Uh, things, are, things have changed for them. So, Pastor Casper, there's a number of avenues that we can explore here. Perhaps first and foremost, just the scene that's happening, some of the parallel accounts that you have for us. What, what's going on in this scene? 
Yeah. Well, this is this is of course what we teach in in catechism, right? The the holy evangelists Matthew, Mark, Luke, skip one, and Saint Paul, right? That's right. Because we don't have a direct account from from John in this case, but we we get there are four references to this to this particular event and the and the telling of it, and it it is man, it, it just must have been such a shocking thing to see that in the midst of the Passover, and and this is not it, 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 this is unique. The disciples and Jesus would have celebrated the Passover three or four times before this, so this this is. A big change for them relative to their own practice in what we know about what Jesus does for us. This is a big event. This is this is a very different different change, a very significant thing. He takes the he takes the, the bread. This is my body, and gives and gives it to them to eat. And this 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 is a big shift. This this is paralleled in John when we hear the the discussion about the bread of life. I am the bread of life, and that actually gives us some cool connection here both to the Passover and to the manna in the wilderness, the life-giving bread from heaven that is for us for, for salvation, that this, this is how this was all intended to be understood, that all the pieces of the various miraculous events and the various sacrifices do come together into one thing, and that one thing is bread and wine, body and blood, and that, that joining together of all, of all of the bits of salvation into one single event this is what's going on here. Having all that stuff together, gathering together that way, the, the, the bread that is the body, the cup, which is the which is new covenant that's poured out for many. And that one is significant too. And we're going to find it exposed a lot more in Paul as we get through the, the expansion of the church. This is not just for, for you disciples. And it's not just going to be for the Jews either. This is what the prophets talked about. The savior of all nations, who is coming from the who is the seed of the woman that is going to crush the serpent's head, this pouring out of the blood of the new covenant is for many, for all people, that all may be saved by this by this regeneration, by this by this forgiveness of sins, life and salvation that we receive in the sacrament. So this is this is really the big deal that all this is coming to coming to, together in the institution of the supper, which is followed very closely. By the crucifixion, death, rest in the tomb, and also then the resurrection on the third day. Right. I mean, Jesus' own words there, particularly what he says concerning the cup, the blood of the covenant poured out for many. I mean, I think in terms of the narrative that Mark has laid out for us so far, our minds should go back to Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That Jesus, I mean, again, all of this teaching that he's been giving to his disciples, he's he's bringing together in this main event. I mean, we've been talking about this throughout the Gospel of Mark, how, how Mark, as he's structured his narrative, and in the things that Jesus is doing, he's, he's driving forward to these moments. This is where everything comes together in the ministry of Jesus, and, and really the ministry of Jesus, if we want to say through the whole Old Testament, what he was doing for his people Israel in the Old Testament is all coming to fruition in these moments. And, and particularly those words, you know, my blood of the covenant poured out for many, all the things that we were saying about sacrifices in the beginning of the program and, and everything that happens in the Passover in the Old Testament, you know, the blood of the covenant, we should be reminded, I think, too, of, of later in Exodus chapter 24, where they're there at Mount Sinai and they, they seal this covenant 
and this is one of the readings for Monday, Thursday, at least one year in the three-year lectionary, where they throw the blood both on the altar and on the people. You the know, people, yeah. I mean, and it's just, and, and again, you know, to go back to that Luther hymn, his blood now marks our door. Christ's blood is put upon us to mark us as his people, those whom he delivers from death. All of these things are, are coming together at this moment, and Jesus is actually now giving it to the these disciples of his in this supper. Indeed. Here our true Paschal Lamb we see, whom God so freely gave us. He died on the accursed tree, so strong his love to save us. See, his blood now marks off. Our door, faith points to it, death passes o'er, and Satan cannot harm us. I won't say the end of the words. That's right. I, I would have to say that during Lent. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to. I had to pull that back out. I do actually know the tune, surprisingly <laughs> enough. <laughs> wow, that yeah, that is such beautiful stuff. This this blood for the salvation of the people that is spread on the altar and thrown out on the among the people themselves this this was not a tidy religion mm. that the lord handed over to his people this was this was kind of a gross faith that they received and so this sacrifice and this blood idea it, it's not as if they never saw it it was the our view of the scope of history is very antiseptic and clean. <laughs> we don't really think about the notion that 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 the sacrifices going on in the temple were kind of an ever-flowing flood of blood through the temple of of Jerusalem. And so when when Jesus comes and and identifies all of that blood sacrifice with himself, that's that's not something that any Jew could could imagine that they didn't see or understand. They know exactly what all this blood is about. They see it all the time. They're consistently in the temple at least a few times a year. They know what the sacrificial system looks like, what it smells like, what what goes on in there. And and for Jesus then to 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 tie up all the all the bows neatly for the disciples to see that this is all about me as the sacrifice. And what's What's funny for us, and of course we look back at the disciples, oh, those, those foolish disciples, they're so dumb, they don't get it, <clears throat> thinking that we would do any better. But, but they don't. They don't understand what's happening before them. They're, they're missing the point, and they're supposed to. They're not supposed to fully get it yet. It's not going to be revealed to them at this point. They're, the, the, the point for them right now is to receive, to hear, to mark and inwardly digest and to spit it back out later so that the account and the, and the testimony is, is available for all who may come to faith after them. Mm. That's, that's their role here, to, to sit and listen and then take notes. Right, and, and when the time comes, when the Spirit is given on Pentecost and their mouths are open to preach, I mean, they do. You know, they, they draw all those things from, and they're preaching the Old Testament in doing this. You know, they're oh, yeah. seeing all those things that they didn't see before that were there in, in shadow. I mean, for example, you know, the, the Good Friday reading from the Old Testament that we hear from Isaiah 52 and 53, the very end of it, you know, it says, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. The idea of his blood being poured out, you know, I mean, Jesus is picking up on that language right here. The things that Jesus is doing were preached in the Old Testament, and faithful Israelites did believe them, even if they didn't have the, the clear picture in their minds. But once this clear picture is given in Jesus, 
and the disciples' mouths are open to speak at Pentecost, they can't help but but preach this. And, and they're preaching the Old Testament. We've talked about this in other texts as well, that you know the way Jesus reads the Old Testament, that it's all about him, is the way the disciples come to read the Old Testament as well, and it's the way that we still read it as Christians, that everything that Jesus is doing in this text is is fulfilled is, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and is, I mean, it's to be preached, as Jesus says, after his resurrection in Luke, is to be preached for repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. And, and I don't want to, we don't have to rehash all that conversation because there's more to look at here, Pastor Casper. Before, <laughs> just briefly, t- tell us a little bit about verse 25, if you will, and then we'll, because I know we want to talk, I mean, obviously we read a text like this as Lutherans, and the, this is my body, this is my blood, stands out and to, to hear again why it is that we believe what we believe about the supper. But before we do that, just verse 25, Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of this fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new in God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. How does that play into this? Yeah, so that's that's playing into that this, this sacrament is for us here on earth as we dwell in this body of death, as we are still struggling in this mortal life against the sin that dwells in us. Paul gets into great detail on this in the, in the doo-doo verses, the good that I would, I do not, and the evil things that I would not, these are the things I do. That stuff, this, this, this dealing with the, the salvation that dwells in us and desires only righteousness and the sin that fights against it dwelling in us that wants only death and destruction, the sacrament is for that. It's for the Christians who are struggling in faith, who are uncertain of salvation, and who need to be consistently and constantly refreshed and renewed in the faith and in the salvation and the assurance of faith and salvation. That's what it's for. It's for us here on earth. And in the resurrection in the kingdom, we will celebrate the Lamb's high feast there with Christ anew, but he won't until we're there with him. And there is, there is this, this separation that is temporary. So with that, we've got about six minutes here on the morning, Pastor Casper, and we could have spent the whole time talking about this, that this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant. I'll get a, this conversation started just with those simple words that Luther gives us in the Catechism when he asks, what is the sacrament of the altar? And and although it may seem like this is a long answer, it, in my mind, this is one of the shortest and simplest answers he gives, and it's it's fantastic in its simplicity, because he says what the text says, and we confess it with him. It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, under the bread and wine, instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. As we think about the supper that Jesus gives to his disciples here, and that he continues to give to his church, that's what we believe it is. Why do we believe that, and why is it so important that we believe that? Wow. Well, we believe it because he said it. That is ultimately the entirety of the Christian faith. Christ said a thing, and we say, yeah, amen, it is so. So that's, that is absolutely true. Uh, that, that was the struggle between Luther and Calvin, of course. What does the word is mean, which seems to be a struggle for most folks in, in speaking language all throughout history. But if Christ said this is my body then it is. And if Christ said it's for the forgiveness of sins, then it is. That's there, there isn't room for us to negotiate what the words mean. They are what they mean. They say what they say. And the only way that we can alter that is by altering whether the word of God is true or not. So since we hold that the word of God is true and he said it, that's all there is. There isn't any wiggle room. Now we'll get a lot more 
explanation. Everything flows into and out of that original statement. This is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under bread and wine for Christians to eat and drink for salvation. Man, that's good stuff. There's a there's a battle in the uh, in the the apology, the Oxford the Oxford Confession um, that that comes up in the Lord in the the battle of the Lord's Supper. Actually, I think I may be mis misciting myself. I'm instead of looking at my notes, I'm going to look at the actual book myself. Yeah, so it, it's it, I'm I'm actually going to the the uh, the formula of conquer the solid declaration is where I was going to look in here, and this is on this is on the Holy Supper, and we get into uh, this is paragraph eleven of uh, the status of the controversy of the Holy Supper, which is Article Seven, and so we're we're deep into this and and getting into paragraph eleven in the apology, in addition to talking about those elements in that way. In the Apology, this is not only explained still more clearly, but also established from the passage of Paul from 1 Corinthians 10.16, and by the testimony of Cyril in the following words. Article 10 has been approved, in which we confess the following. We believe that the Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ, body and blood are truly substantially present, and are truly administered with these things that are seen, bread and wine, to those who receive the sacrament. Since Paul says, the bread that we break, is it not a participation of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it would follow that if the Lord's body were not truly present, the bread is not a communion of the body, but only of Christ's spirit. We have determined that not only the Roman church affirms Christ's bodily presence, the Greek church also now believes and formerly believed the same. And so we're, we're gathering together in confession with, the larger Christian church on earth, that this is this is the true expression of the Christian faith as we understand it. And it all boils down to that is word. There were these folks running around, these sacramentarians, and the Calvinists are going to be part of this crowd eventually too, that that hold to a different understanding. And, and we may know some folks in our own sphere of, of, of contact that have this other understanding, that, that somehow when Christ says, this is my body, he means this is yeah, spiritually, and when you partake of the sacrament, you receive the spiritual presence of Christ's body somehow, or, and there are various ways this goes, there is the notion that, that we spiritually ascend to the heavens to, to, to commune on Christ's body there, and the bread is all we get here, and all those things miss the point of, of the text we have. This is my body. And when we say that there isn't room for other interpretations we don't have room to go other ways with it we have to actually take the words for what they say this is and that also then draws us out to our communion practice too why is it that we exclude some and not others and the reason isn't because we're mean we are but it's not why um, it isn't because we're jerks because we're also jerks what it really is is it boils down to the fact that we love our neighbor and since Christ's body is truly present in this meal, and we truly receive Christ's body and blood, those who receive it in faith receive forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And those who receive it without faith receive it to their own condemnation. And that's where that's where Christ's blood and body being actually there in the way that we understand it from the words Christ said and from what we have taught since that time, that really makes it important for us to treat this as if it were a thing that could both both bless and condemn, because it does. And and certainly as the church, as pastors, as Christians, 
together. We want this meal to be given to Christ's people who believe so that they can receive it to their benefit. And, and again, the is is so important because not only, and it's not about being right, but it's about giving the gifts of Christ, his body, his blood. For what? For the forgiveness of sins, to mark us as his people, to deliver us from death and into eternal life where we will celebrate this feast eternally. That's the blessing that Christ is giving us as a foretaste right now that he's going to give us in full in his kingdom when he comes and we eat and drink with him fully on that day. Pastor Jason Casper is the pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. Pastor Casper, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me, Pastor Apple. This was always fun. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 14 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.